especially a story that has application to it, a story that you have to dig in, and a story that needs uncovering. And there's no richer group of stories that I know of than the parables taught by Jesus Christ. And together these short stories form a precious strand of truth. They're almost like a single strand of costly pearls. And they speak of great truth, truth that Jesus Christ wanted to communicate to his followers. And as we, we look at this, here in the Gospel of Luke, we have the first recorded parable of our Lord. And if we look at the background, we need to recognize that the ministry of God's Son was quickly ga- gathering momentum. By his authoritative teaching, by his miracles that he had performed, our Lord had proved himself to be Israel's long-awaited Messiah and King. And with that expectation filled the air, what's going to happen next? What's he going to do? We know that people were being healed, people were being ministered to, their lives were being changed. And it wasn't long before Jesus began to attract larger and larger crowds. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, we are told when Jesus went through the towns and villages, many people followed him. And these were exciting times. These were challenging times. But there's also another fact there, that Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men, was clearly concerned. He was concerned that the crowds who were following him really didn't get it. He was concerned that they, would, that they were understanding the implications of the proclamations that he was making, concerned that he could not be and would not be content to have simply a superficial believism a superficial following, a superficial adherence to his claims. And it appears that at the beginning of the parables, which is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a turning point has been reached in the life and ministry of our Lord. It's almost as if Jesus looked upon the scene and saying this reverently, he says to himself, I'm not sure the people are really getting the point. I'm not so sure that they really see what I'm all about. I'm not so sure that people fully appreciate the implications of what I have been saying. And so contrary to what many people have believed, and contrary to the pattern of subsequent generations, and I would say contrary or in contrast to the pattern today, especially in our own country, Jesus addresses the people now in such a manner as to reduce their numbers, not increase them. And I need to say that again because that's very important. It's important for us to realize that Christ's ways are not always our ways. And Jesus Christ is now addressing the people in such a way as to reduce, not increase their numbers. And it's interesting then that while many today are preoccupied with expanding their numbers and doing everything necessary not to scare anyone away in order to make things so they're not too demanding, let someone be troubled in such a way that they walk away, Jesus does the exact opposite. And in reality, it's not the only time that he does it. There are times in Christ's ministry when I'm sure the disciples just cringed. Oh, no, not again. Here's the rich young ruler coming to the Lord, and he asks the Lord a question. And what happens? The Lord begins, begins to give an answer, and the disciples are thinking, well, that blows it. I mean, that man's going to turn right around and walk away, and he'll never come back. And you know that's exactly what he did. And Jesus didn't chase after him. There's a time in John chapter 6 when Jesus begins to teach about the difficulties of discipleship, about the true difficulties of following him. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking, oh no, here it goes. Oh, yep, some in the back row are already leaving. And as he continued to teach, more and more departed until finally Jesus looked around and it was only the disciples there. And he asks the question, will you also go away? And they gave the right answer. You know, where should we go? You are the one that has the words of eternal life. 
but we see our Lord over and over again showing forth the fact that he is concerned not about something ten miles wide and one inch deep, but he's concerned about truth being formed in the lives of his followers. He's concerned about discipleship in such a way that there are true followers of him that are truly committed to him. And so there are those times that come about in his ministry where he scatters the crowd. And just to make sure we don't miss what he's doing here, Jesus points out this purpose, and he points out the purpose of the, par- the parables. And as we see that, he declared that the parables were given to separate the superficial from the serious. So that by means of parables, Jesus would both reveal and conceal truth. And by the way, that's the significance then of the troubling words that we find in this portion of uh, Luke chapter 8 in verses 9 and 10. Because if you look in verses 9 and 10 of Luke chapter 8, as we, we consider that, or actually we go a little bit further there, where, um, where Jesus says, first of all, in verse, the last part of verse 8, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, what might this parable be? And he said, unto you is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. And that may be troubling for us. Because in our mindset, in our way of looking at things, we would think, well, Jesus wants them to see and Jesus wants them to hear so that in seeing they hear and hearing they would understand. But in reality, he's saying, no, the things that I'm going to be talking to you about right now are things that I don't want to just give out to anyone and everyone. And Jesus points out that the knowledge of the secrets of his kingdom had been given to his followers, but to others he is going to be speaking in parables. And there's a reason for it as we go on. In essence, he's saying these parables will reveal and they will identify those that are genuine seekers, the ones who will take the, tr- the time and the trouble to dig deep, the ones who will take the time and the trouble to really find out what I'm all about and make the necessary discoveries and make the necessary commitments in following me, while the superficial will be content to say, you know, I don't really get it. I don't know what he means, and frankly, I don't care. And that is the reason, and I need to underscore this very carefully, that Jesus used parables so that the casual, uncommitted hearer wouldn't understand. Because Jesus, the Lord of glory, wants and deserves more than mere lip service. And that's all he was getting from the multitudes. And so it's time to make a change. And so we find then that the parables of Christ are a mine of wealth, of information, of those who are sincere. But they act and stand as judgment upon the casual and careless hearer. Which means then that we're confronted by something very important this morning. We're confronted by the turning point of Jesus' ministry, that Christ recognizes that in a group, as was following him, as well as in those today that are following him, there are many people that are there simply out of curiosity. There are others that were in his group that were simply there because of the big crowds. They wanted to be there and what was going on. But along with that, there are also some who are really, really interested in learning and growing and following Jesus Christ. And they were there because of their love and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And those are the ones that Jesus Christ wanted to speak to now. And so he spoke in parables, and in speaking in parables, those who were interested would stay and listen and learn. Those who were just casual, careless, would walk away. Because he wants to let them in on the key and the truths and the secrets of his kingdom. Which brings us then to our first point this morning, a profitable illustration. Now, this parable is often entitled the parable of the sower. If you really think about it, there's very little said about the sower and a whole lot said about the soil. And it's surprising to me that this has not been referred to then as the parable of the soils because the emphasis really is upon the four different kinds of soil. And whatever else we glean or gain from this passage, we must certainly understand that whenever we ask, what does it mean to really follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean to really be saved? And can we be contented with simply having a superficial relationship on the fringes of faith? These verses in parable form help us answer those questions. We know that Jesus often used figures of speech in order to teach. 
in order to communicate truth. We know there was a time when Jesus Christ said, you are the salt of the earth. And really what he's saying is, I want you to stop and think about that. What does that mean? And they could think that through and they could figure that out. And they also said, you are the light of the world. Now what does that mean to you? And as they thought about it, Jesus then said, you know, a person who lights a candle doesn't put it under a bushel, but he allows it to be open so that everyone in the room may receive light. He says, do you get that? Do you understand that? And they could say yes. And then he went on and said, you are the light of the world. Therefore, draw the conclusion, you don't hide your light. And that's pretty simple. That's pretty straightforward. Now, Jesus then, out of the routine of this day and of this time, uses an event which probably everyone there would have understood, they would have been familiar with, something that was customary for them to see. For in Jesus' day, they would sow wheat and barley by hand. And it was not uncommon then to see a man with a, a sack over his shoulder, reaching down into that sack and casting out seed, spreading the seed, as that was the means and the way to scatter the seed to have it sown in a field. And as a result of how they sowed their seed, seed then ended up going in different directions and it ended up on different types of soil. And in verses 5 through 8, Jesus speaks about that. He describes the various results of sowing seed in such a way. And all is very straightforward. And look with me, if you would then, please, beginning with verse 5. And we're told, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. Now, the fact that this seed ended up on the wayside on the path is pretty easy to understand. If the wind's blowing at all, if you're just casting seed, it's going to fall in different areas, and some of it's going to fall upon the wayside or the pathways. And in that day, fields were surrounded by pathways. And those would be the ways that would be walked upon. And in time, that ground became very, very hard. You'll find that that's the ground the disciples were walking on when that one day when they reached over and took those grains of corn and began to eat them on the Sabbath day. They were just walking through a field. And they were not walking down the middle of the field, but walking through those pathways then. And that's where some of the seed would land. And there was no guarantee that some of it would not end up on that common thoroughfare then. And as a result of landing there, it would be trampled under feet. And when people were far enough away, the birds would be watching, and the birds would be saying, you know, that's a good meal, let's go and let's get it. And they would go down and take and snatch that seed away. It wouldn't grow there. Then if we go from there to verse 6, we see the next area where the seed falls. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And many of Christ's listeners would have also identified with this, because they knew the area of Palestine. They understood that there were great layers of rock embedded in the, the Palestinian heartland. And so they knew and understood that it was possible to look upon a scene that appeared to be conducive to growth. The seed would be scattered, but as soon as that seed would sprout up, the roots trying to go down could not penetrate because there was rock right beneath the surface, and it was, the soil was not effective then for rooting. The seeds germinating, the plants would spring up with tremendous growth because all the energy would grow into the plant itself. But because, again, the roots could not penetrate the rock, then in turn, it was not long before the, the plant withered and died. So that the plant that looked so promising to begin with, maybe even faster growing than the other plants around, died and withered just as quickly. Which brings us then to verse 7. And there we read, And some of the, some fell among thorns, and the thorn, thorn sprang up with it and choked it. After the ground had been cultivated, it looked perfectly good. But when the grain began to sprout on the ground, so did the thorns. And these tough, thistle-bearing weeds came up and choked out the good plants, taking most of the space, taking most of the moisture, the nourishment, the sunlight for themselves. And you know, one thing I've discovered, it's easy to grow weeds. I've never had a problem growing weeds. It, it's, it's very easy. But it's difficult to grow what we're really trying to grow. In fact, nothing grows faster than what we don't want to grow. Have you ever noticed that? Even when you fertilize, you do everything you're supposed to be doing, all of a sudden you look and here's the plant growing this much and the weeds are growing that much. There's just something about it. That was the experience here. And those weeds then, those thistle-bearing weeds, choked out the life of the good seed. 
Jesus goes on then and refers to one final kind of soil, the good soil, and that's found in verse 8. Another fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. The good soil was suitable for healthy growth. It was away from the path. It was loose. It was soft. It was deep. It had that sufficient depth. And it was free of weeds. And because of those favorable conditions, it yielded a crop. Here we're told of a hundredfold. If you look at the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, you'll find there it's mentioned also 30-fold, 60-fold, as well as a hundredfold. And what's even more amazing is the average crop sown produced about an eight-fold increase in Jesus' day. So for every one seed sown, you would get eight back. So when you're talking about a 30-fold or a 60-fold or a 100-fold, you're way beyond average. You're at a phenomenal crop at that point in time. Ten to one was almost unheard of, let alone a 30, 60, or 100-fold. But Jesus wants to emphasize the point of what this seed will produce in a life where it really falls on proper ground. Now with that, Jesus is going to then give a personal explanation. Because having used this parable as a means of instruction, it was inevitable that the disciples would inquire concerning the meaning especially when Jesus concluded his story with some very intriguing words. Notice the last part of verse 8, where we're told there, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And you can imagine the people that were assembled there at that time putting their hands to their head and saying, What did he say? Did you catch that? He that has ears to hear, let him hear? Yeah, that's a strange statement. You know, I've got ears. So why is he saying that? Now I want you to notice, Jesus does not say, He that has ears, let him hear. He says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. He that has the spiritual insight, he that is spiritually attuned to what I am saying, he that is locked in on the fact that the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. He that is open to my word, let him hear what I am saying. And the disciples lock onto that statement, and if we take it back to Matthew, we find out later on then, when they were just with our Lord, they asked the question, what might this parable be? We see the question also in verse 9 here. And Jesus doesn't immediately answer them. But he goes on to point out the use, the use of this unique form of instruction, as we mentioned in our introduction. And then after presenting these troubling words, as we see in verse 10, Jesus gives the necessary explanation. And he says, you know, it wasn't given for everyone to know this. It's given for those of you that I have chosen to know the truths of the keys, the, the secrets of the kingdom. And we have to remember again that a parable is essentially an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And though Jesus' parables use things that are familiar, he talks here about soil, seed, of birds, thorns, rocks, sun, wheat, Later on, he's going to talk about fields. He's going to talk about pearls, many different things. In these particular parables, and this one especially, the truth is not made clear. So after Jesus says that, the disciples are scratching their heads. Jesus said, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. What are you saying, Lord? Do you want us to be farmers? Do you want us to make sure that we get rid of all the weeds? Get rid of all the rocks? Do you want to make sure that we don't sow seed on the, the pathways there? They don't have a clue of the meaning. And you and I don't have a clue the meaning either without an explanation that comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus. And that's where that separation comes in. Those who are really interested are going to follow and ask and find out. Those who just scratch their heads and say, I don't get it. Oh, that's too, too much for me. They're going to walk away. And so they ask the Lord the question. And so we see that in these particular parables, the truth is not made clear. The story only tells a literal account without presenting the moral or spiritual truth until Jesus opens his mouth again until he explains what the soil is, until he explains about the seed, the thorns, the other figures represented here. Then the disciples could understand, and it was to the disciples and the disciples alone that Jesus then gave this explanation. And the first thing we find here is that the seed is the word of God. In fact, if you turn sometime to Matthew chapter 13 and go through, you see in verse 37 that the one who is sowing the seed is Christ himself, and in turn the seed is God's word, 
and the soil is the heart of mankind. Now we're getting a little bit of a picture. And this is confirmed by the fact that the devil in Luke chapter 8 verse 12 comes and takes away the word of God which is in their hearts. And once we've made this deduction that the sower is our Lord, the seed is the word, and the soils are dealing with the issues of our hearts, then once we've made that, the parable becomes pretty much straightforward, though it's still challenging. Because as, as we look here, we're about to be confronted with the fact that just as there were four types of soil in the story Jesus gave, there are also four types of hearts. Jesus says to us and to the disciples through his word that when I sow my seed, it does not all produce the same result. And the different results has little to do with my word because my word is perfect. My word is the perfect seed. Instead, it has to do with the soil, which means the hearts that receive my word. And so we were confronted by the question this morning, what's the condition of my heart? And you're confronted with the question this morning, what's the condition of your heart? If there are four conditions of heart that Jesus is mentioning here, and he wants to illustrate, and he wants the disciples and us to understand, then we have to ask the question, what's the condition of my heart right now? And Jesus goes on then and gives the description of four different hearts. And the analogies between the world of nature and the spirit realm are amazing here. They're both informative and profound. And the first thing we see is Jesus is going to identify an indifferent heart. Notice verse 12. Those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil, and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should be believed and be saved. Those along the path are the ones who hear, but they do nothing with the message they hear. They have ears, but they do not hear. And they fail, according to Luke chapter 8, verse 18, to carefully consider how they listen. And this, is, I think, is probably the most critical thing here, is the fact that Jesus reveals there's a listening which has nothing to do with true hearing. Or to look at it another way, there's a level at which people speak without talking. There's a level at which people hear without really hearing. Yeah, I'm sure you've done that before, or you've experienced it before. You've been on the receiving end. You're talking with someone, and as you're talking with someone, all of a sudden you realize they're listening, but they're not really listening. They're hearing what I say, but they're not really hearing. And you can even change subjects, and they don't even catch it. They're hearing words, and they just know you're talking. Maybe you've done that before. You know, where somebody's talking to you, and you begin to answer, and as you, you answer, and you start to answer, you realize, I wasn't really listening to what that person was saying. And Jesus is saying there's a time where people listen, but they don't really hear. And he wants them to see and understand that. And as we look at that, that's the case here, because when the Word of God is proclaimed, there are those who have an indifferent heart to the Word. They hear the same thing as the person next to them, the same word being spoken, but because they are indifferent in their response, they really don't hear and they are easy prey then for that word to be snatched from them so that they don't really process what's being said. In fact, we're told the devil delights to come and take the word away from their heart so they cannot believe and so they cannot be saved. And we're not told what's the basis for their indifference. Maybe it's an attitude that they have towards the messenger. Maybe it's an attitude they have towards the message. Maybe it's just that they become dull to the process. You know, a heart can be exposed to the everyday evils of our world until it becomes as hard as the pathway upon which that seed was sown in the, in the story. And that's why I think of all of the things you and I ought to be concerned with. And that's why the thing that I'm most concerned about in my own heart, in my own life, is that I will not develop a hardened heart. It's easy to grow hardened to the truth of God if we're not careful. To the everyday events of life. To the everyday problems of life. A heart that then becomes impervious to the Word of God. A heart that becomes hard and cynical. A heart that becomes cold because of the routine of life. I fear a heart that becomes a pathway upon which the truths of God's word will drop on it and then will be just snatched away so very quickly. And we need to be very, very careful there. 
And Jesus says there are those whose hearts are as hard as the pathway in this story. And when the word of God is proclaimed, they don't hear it. It just goes right on by. It doesn't penetrate their heart, which allows the devil then to take away the word so they cannot believe, so they cannot receive, and so they cannot be saved. So Jesus speaks of that type of heart. Also, Jesus speaks of the impulsive heart. Notice with me in verse 13. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation, fall away. This is represented by the rocky ground, where there's that instant bloom and instant fade. And that's very serious. These are the ones who hear the word and say, wow, that's great, that's fantastic. Oh, I've never heard that before. I went to this church and boy, did I have a great time. And boy, just sign me up. Whatever they say, I'm doing it. This is wonderful. And before long, people look at that individual and are blown away and they're asking, what happened to so-and-so? This is tremendous. Look at how their life has changed. Such people usually have a lot to say. So much joy in their life. And we could never ever say that nothing happened because something obviously happened. They received the word and they did so with joy. They've been emotionally stirred. It's been exciting, whatever it is in their life. And they make much of the fact that they've been moved by the word. As soon as they heard it, they said, you can count me in, I'll sign up. But notice Jesus says, it only lasts for a little while. That when the testings or the temptations come, something that had not been seen before is revealed. And we're told, they have no root. And that plant, that life fades away. And simply put, that which is intended to strengthen our faith, which are the trials and struggles and testings of life, also revealed to that one who has no true faith, the level of that they have and the troubles that they're experiencing exposes the heart that it's empty of real faith. And his, this is what Jesus is saying here. They have no real roots. They have never been rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. And that's why I believe it is very dangerous for us. And why am I caution in my references to individuals who, quote-unquote, become Christians? Not because I doubt God's ability to save, but it's because I recognize the truth of God's Word and I recognize the truth of the soil. That even when an appeal is given and people respond, you and I need to recognize that although some appear to receive the word of God with joy, they may be without root. And at a time of testing, the truth comes forth. And I have been amazed through my ministry of how many people that really applies to. And this becomes an explanation concerning that which I think we all know. Instead of pressing upon an individual, oh, you're saved. Yeah, I remember when you walked that aisle. I remember when you prayed that prayer. We ought to exhort them if there's a problem, if there's a struggle. You need to go back and look at what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Because the impulsive heart receives the word with joy. But when the testing comes, he's history. She's history. Let me tell you, Jesus said that, not me. Which is why it's important in the proclamation of the truth that it engages the mind as well as the heart. See, it's relatively easy if a person's a good communicator and understands the power of music as well. It's relatively easy to engage people's emotions. You can do it quickly, you can do it powerfully. And for the moment at least, such an approach can appear to be very effective. But there's an essential element of instruction that is often missing that must also be involved in order for people to make a genuine response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the claims of Christ. And that involves the mind, the will, as well as the emotions. If you stir the emotions without the mind and the will, watch out later on. That will be the one that responds with joy but has no root and in time it shows forth. And that's why there's a danger in a kind of superficial emotional presentation. People may enjoy it, people may be jazzed up by it, but in the end they may only be in category two. There's no lasting root and it's only an impulsive heart. And that you've met them, I've met them. You know, you probably talk to them at work, maybe a neighbor somewhere along the way and they say, oh, I did that back there somewhere, but it didn't take. 
Oh yeah, when I was 14, I walked an aisle, but it really didn't work. Or when I was 22, I went to this evangelistic service, but it doesn't work. Those are the individuals that maybe responded for the moment, but there was no true depth of root. Jesus also goes on and describes the preoccupied heart. Look with me at verse 14. The first group never responded at all. The second group responded quickly and dropped out and dropped away just as quickly. Of this third group among the thorns, Jesus says that this life is choked out. Just as surely as the young plants are choked by the thorns and weeds, so the cares of this world squeeze out the potential life that has sprung up. And these things, the cares, drive away the possibility of assurance and maturity or fruitfulness. Notice with me, if you would, in verse 14, as Jesus says here, And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. That's the third group. But there's a fourth one, and that's the responsive heart. And here's where the seed falls on good soil. It's prepared, it's loose, it's deep, it's free of rock, it's free of weeds. And as we look at this in verse 15, we're told, But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. We stand for those who retain the word. And in time, through that persevering in time, they produce a crop, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And the illustration then is very clear. Jesus Christ is the sower who sows his word on four types of soil. And Jesus' explanation is also just as obvious. There are four types of soil and there are four types of hearts. And with four different kinds of hearts, there are also four results. Which brings us into our final point this morning, and it's really the most important of all, because it deals with the issue of a practical application. And here's where we pull everything together. Jesus uses the illustration, he gives the explanation, but what about application for your life and for mine? And in reality, the application is just as clear. It's inherent in really what we've already looked at. But here's how it works. The Word of God is like a searchlight. It searches into our hearts. The Bible talks about it in one way as we see the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the, the, the dividing of soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so God's Word as a searchlight searches our hearts. It's like the spotlights that are up here that I can't stand at times on Sunday morning. Because the lights are so bright right here that I can't look out here and see anyone. Everything just becomes a blur real quickly. I can look over here and see people. I can look over there. So if you don't want me to see you, now you know where to sit, right in here. And uh, usually, you know, the guys are keeping it down a little bit. It's a little bit easier. But what's important to see is God's Word is like that light. It reveals. And as it pierces, it shines and shows what's within our hearts. And as it pierces and it shines in, it shows us what we really are. And it, as it shows us what we really are, it asks the question from this portion, what kind of soil, what kind of heart do you really have when it comes to spiritual truth? That's, which soil and which heart do you have? And that's what I'd like to do then, is take that and finish, because that's what Jesus was doing here. Because as God looks upon a group of people, God looks upon this group of people, as he looks upon this congregation, God doesn't care really how we quantify ourselves. Whether we say we're short or tall, whether we're this way or that way, whatever identifying marks we want to use, God really doesn't care what kind of identifying marks we want to use. God's concerned about what we really are within. And he's concerned about the soil of our hearts. He's concerned about the condition of our hearts. The scripture talks about keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the what? Issues of life. And so he sees our hearts. And he sees us in one of four categories. And so in reality, what he could do is say, okay, category one, gather over here together. And here's what I want to say to you. You have an indifferent heart. And the question would be, is there anyone here this morning who would say, you know, that's true about me. 
in reality, when it's all said and done, no matter what anyone sees outside here, my heart is really indifferent towards the Word of God. My heart is indifferent when I hear the Word of God. I come Sunday after Sunday, but my heart is indifferent. I hear, but you might as well just speak into the wind because it really doesn't move me. It does nothing for me. And if that's your condition, let me say this morning, you need some people praying for you. You need a lot of people praying for you. Because it will take the grace of God and the grace of God alone to soften your heart. Because when you have a hardened heart, there's nothing you can do to turn it off, on or turn it off, to open it or close it. You need God's grace to work and to soften that heart. And you need people praying for you. And if you look through Scripture, you can find different indications of people who had that kind of heart. In Acts chapter 17 at Athens, Paul's preaching. And as Paul preaches, as he concludes, some sneered, others jeered. They had a hardened heart. They could not and they would not hear. You find it also in, uh, as Acts, in Acts chapter 24, as Paul shared with Felix about the claims of Christ. Felix said this, I'll wait for a more convenient time. I'm not going to be moved now. And you know what? We never find that Felix ever found that convenient time to hear. That's why the scripture is very clear in saying, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. I have met people who said, You know, I remember when God was speaking to me and I said no. And you know what? I don't care anymore. We need to be careful about an indifferent heart. And we need God to move that indifferent heart to make it something different. We also might, must ask ourselves, is my heart an impulsive heart? You know, the Word of God and the Word of God alone searches our hearts. It's something only God can do. It's not for you to search the heart of the person next to you. It's not for me to search that person's heart. We, could, we should never ever be so presumptuous. We need to look into the mirror of God's Word and ask God, what do you see in me? And could this be possible that this is my experience? Is this why I have no victory over sin? Is this why I'm no different since I was saved than what I was before I was saved? You know, somebody told me if I did this, if I did that, if I walked an aisle, if I prayed a prayer, I would, you know, I would be different and I wanted to be different, so I did those things, but nothing ever happened. What's the answer to that? Ask God to reveal to you the condition of your heart. Because instant bloom and instant fade is not simply an illustration. It's a reality. I've seen it. I've seen the instant bloom and then I've also seen very quickly then the instant fade. Jesus said it's a reality, so we need to be careful. And what a dreadful position to be in for a person to know themselves and to know nothing of the freeing work of Jesus Christ, that lasting change brought about being rooted and grounded in Christ, to hit rock bottom after a week or two weeks or three weeks or a month or so, or even a year, and then be confronted with the horrible prospect that people think you're saved when you know in reality that you're not. I've talked with people like that. Well, I can't disappoint anyone because they thought that I was this, they thought I was that, because I did this and I did that. And I said, you know, the, condition, the real issue is not what people think, but what you know to be true before God. And we, we, maybe that person responded, but the roots never went down into Christ. They just responded to an emotional appeal. Never truly received Him. And consequently, there's no growth and there's no fruitfulness. The next question, and this is the tough one, do we have a preoccupied heart? And let me tell you, immediately, I am sure there are those that are starting to argue theologically in their minds. They probably already hit the second one, and now they're really going full force here. Whether this has to do with people who are saved or people that have never matured, or whether they were you know, ever saved at all, whatever. Suffice it to say, there is one and one category described by Jesus Christ with which he and we should ever be content, and by which we can derive assurance and fruitfulness. And let me tell you, it's not the preoccupied heart. Everyone get that? Don't try to argue which it is, save, lost, whatever. Just realize God's not pleased with the preoccupied heart. That's the message. You know, I've seen people that have argued and argued and argued over this point, and they missed the point. The point is not what, 
The point is, is this person preoccupied with the things of this world? Because if they are, then they are not fruitful and they fall short of what God expects of them and they will not have the assurance. They will not have that affirmation. They will not have that joy. They will not have that fruitfulness that God desires for them. That's the real issue. That's what's important to see. Because this preoccupied heart is choked. It's choked by worry. It's choked by riches. It's choked by care. It's choked by possessions. It's choked by the pleasures of this life. And it reaches out and says this, yes, I would like to follow Jesus Christ. But having reached out and embraced that notion, it begins to worry about what others might think or might say, especially if someone thinks they might be getting fanatical. Or it's when we begin to think about the possibilities and the probabilities of laying our all on the altar for Christ against the material gains represented in going a different direction, it becomes too much for that individual. When the lure of Christianity light that says you can have it all and do nothing, you can have it all and there's no cross-bearing, you can have it all and you don't have to be one of these good soil types, we hasten away after pleasure. Maybe an area of overindulgence, and it may be an area that's not sin, but just an imbalance. It may be an area where God says, this is not wrong, but for you it's become an obstacle of yielding everything to Jesus Christ. Maybe only to the extent in which we embrace pleasure and let go of Christ. Whatever it might be, it prevents fruitfulness. And the concern is, is there something like that in my life that is keeping me from being fruitful? Which brings us to really the final question then. Do we have the kind of responsive heart that Jesus is talking about? The kind of heart that says this, Lord Jesus, I understand your story. I understand why you came to this earth. I understand why you died. Now, I also understand that you don't necessarily want a big crowd of people simply milling around in your way, ten miles wide and one inch deep, because I understand that you are in the business of discipleship. And in the business of discipleship, you want change. You want Christ-likeness. You want holiness more than you want happiness. You want to change in life. You're in the business of making disciples and transforming lives. And I cannot get what I need without at the same time getting what I don't necessarily want. I cannot get what I need, which is forgiveness and freedom from guilt and heaven as my home, without at the same time having to take your yoke upon me and learning of you. Lord Jesus, I'm willing to go that way, and I want to pay the price. I'm willing to be like a newborn baby in relationship to your word. The baby wants more and more nourishment. And the person who comes to Christ truly in that good soil is going to want more and more about Jesus, more and more about his word. He or she digs deep and draws from God's word. They become rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word. And you know what happens when they become rooted and grounded in the truth of the person of Jesus Christ and God's word? They grow. And you know what happens as they begin to grow? They begin to produce fruit. And the world looks on and says, there's something different about that individual, and they begin to produce fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. That's God's plan. Not 10 miles wide and one inch deep, but people that are rooted and grounded into the truth of God's word, rooted and grounded in Christ, so that they grow up in him in all things, and he becomes our sufficiency. He becomes our all in all. That he is the focal point, not things. He is the focal point, not me and what I want out of life. He is everything. And that is what Jesus Christ was doing here. So that on that day when Jesus Christ proclaimed that parable, he began to scatter the crowd. And I believe in much the same way today, when this truth is preached, the crowd is also scattered. Because in reality, we can't do anything less than be honest before God's word and find ourselves as he sees us. And the key question is this morning, where am I? Am I indifferent? Am I, am I impulsive? Am I preoccupied? Or am I responsive? Because it's only those who have that responsive heart that will discover the joy and the assurance of true and lasting faith.
Let me tell you why this is so important as we close. If you look at where we are today, over the last 50 years, there has been a huge increase in the number of people who claim to be Christian. And with that percentage of increase approaching over 30%, 40%, some surveys say 50-60% of the population of our country, if that were true, there should be a dramatic change in the moral fiber and climate of our country. But at the same time, there's been this huge increase in people saying, oh, I'm a Christian. There's been a decline in the moral fiber and character of our country. Why is that? Is it because we have presented a partial message that on impulse people respond, but they have no root and therefore no fruit? I really believe that's, that's true. And I believe that many churches are full of people like that when the church is really to be made up of those who are regenerate. And when you have a church made up of unregenerate people, then you're not going God's way, and you're not going to be fruitful, and then you have the, the problems and morality and all the other issues that we face in our society today. Jesus Christ is saying something important, and we probably don't really want to hear it. It probably makes some of us uncomfortable, because Jesus Christ is saying, bigger is not best, large crowds are not always great. There are times when we have to get down to what's really important. And he did it over and over again, because his truth was that important. And he is saying that to us this morning. We need to be careful, and we need to guard against just thinking, big is good. It's underneath that's important. And it's the fruitfulness that comes out of the true life of faith that Jesus Christ is looking for, and that we should then see that gives us assurance that truly we are what we claim to be. You know, you can claim to be anything you want to claim, but in reality, it's what you are that's most important. You can claim to be this, you can claim to be that, but in the end, are you really, are you truly that believer? Do you have that receptive heart? Because the receptive heart hears and believes and obeys God's word. Let's pray. Father, I, as we conclude this morning, I just thank you for this portion. Not an easy portion, yet I think it's a very, very necessary portion. May we take to heart what your son has said here. May we be very, very careful that we apply it to our own lives. And may we not be so foolish, may we not be so arrogant to just brush away your words. Lord Jesus, you looked upon the multitudes and you saw it was time to speak, but not time for everyone to listen. It was time to speak, but not for everyone to hear. And so you spoke in parables, and then you gave the meaning to your disciples. Give us that meaning and show to us and shine upon our hearts where we are today. And just with our heads bowed this morning, no idea where you are in all of this. If you're here today and God's speaking to your heart saying, you know, whatever your name might be, your heart's indifferent. You know it, I know it. Time to do business with me. This concludes Pastor Meyer's teachings. If they've been a blessing to you and you'd like more teachings by him in the months ahead, We'd love to hear from you, each of you. 